Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. And we're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. Just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. There are people sometimes when you know their story and you watch them engage in worship, man, it just inspires. Felix, you and your family have inspired me today. Pray for a moment. Holy Spirit of God, whatever you desire to do in this moment, we just welcome you here. Lord, as you have spoken to us in song, we now ask that you would speak to us through your word. Would you give me strength today to preach? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. I love you guys. I had the privilege this week uh, traveling and speaking in a few states across the country. 
One of them, Wednesday evening, I was in the state of Tennessee in the city of Memphis. In Memphis, Tennessee, one of the most historic churches in the United States, particularly in the denomination that we affiliate with, is located there. It's called Bellevue Baptist Church. You may have heard one of their pastors for decades was on radio and television all over the world, Dr. Adrian Rogers. Had the privilege of preaching there Wednesday night. The pastor, a couple of pastors before Adrian Rogers, when Bellevue first became this historic church, was a pastor by the name of Dr. R.G. Lee. Dr. R.G. Lee was an older pastor when my dad was beginning in ministry. My dad had the opportunity to be around Dr. Lee, to sit at his feet, to learn from him, and to even lead the worship in some places where Dr. Lee was going to preach. My dad has told me the stories of Dr. Lee's preaching, and I've heard some of his preaching via recordings that you can find online. Dr. Lee had a lot of powerful sermons that he would preach, but they say that when Dr. Lee preached on heaven, that nobody preached on heaven like Dr. R.G. Lee. They say that he could articulate the truth of heaven in such a way that When he would describe it, it was almost as if people that were listening to him felt like they could see it with their own eyes. He was so articulate and had such an anointing to communicate the truth about heaven that when, that when he described it, my dad says and others say, you literally felt like you were there. You could see it. You could almost touch it. It felt so real. When Dr. Lee reached the end of his life, He was about to go to heaven. He was in a room on what you and I would call his deathbed with a few friends and family members that loved him and loved Jesus and had served with him throughout the years there in the room with him. And they were singing songs of worship and they were reading passages of scripture about heaven. Many of those that Dr. Lee had preached for years and years and years and years. And Dr. Lee at this point was kind of slipping in and out of consciousness. And they say, I wasn't there, but they say that we're there. That at one moment in song and worship and reading the word of God, that Dr. Lee all at once sat up. And he said, there it is. I can see it. And I didn't do it justice. And then he laid down and closed his eyes and slipped into eternity. When I hear stories like that, when we sing songs like we just sang and try to imagine the reality of heaven, when I, when I read books, the, one of the things that, that we've done as a team leading up to this series that we're walking through is every book that we're quoting and that we're recommending to you, we've read that book and two or three others on this subject. We've read books by Randy Alcorn and Tony Evans and Chip Ingram and John MacArthur, all these wonderful books about heaven. And, and I just got to be honest, the more I have read and read and read about this subject of heaven, and the more I hear things like, like that, I I I cannot wait to see what heaven is going to be like. 
Anybody else in the room with me? You, you, you can't wait to see what heaven's going to be like. There's probably no human being more qualified, more, more uh, qualified to talk about heaven than the man John in the New Testament. We read last weekend as he recorded for us in his gospel the account where Jesus promised heaven. And we talked last weekend about the reality that heaven is a real place prepared by God to be with his people forever. And last weekend, out of those words of Jesus that John wrote down, we nailed down this idea that heaven is a real place, as real as Las Vegas, Nevada, or Tokyo, or Miami, or London, England. Heaven is a real place. But, but John didn't just hear Jesus promise heaven. John got a preview of heaven. I don't know about you, when I go to the movies, my, my, one of my favorite parts is the previews. My family doesn't love them like I love them because if they did, they wouldn't be late every time we go to the movie. If you miss the previews, listen, you're late. Don't tell me the movie hadn't started yet. If you miss the previews, you're late. That's in the Bible somewhere, I promise. I love the previews because it's previews of what? Coming attractions, right? It's coming. John got a preview. John not only heard the promise where Jesus said, heaven's a real place and I'm going to prepare it for you. Jesus told John, John, I want you to open your eyes and I'm going to show you what it looks like. And then he said this, John, I want you to write it down so everybody else can see what you've seen. If you have your Bible, I want you to open it and turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21, beginning in verse number one. John said, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we're not even going to get today to unpack why he says it's new, all right? You got to come back next week and the next week to find out why it's new, all right? Can't go there right now. We don't have time, I promise you, but it's good. A new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea and I saw the holy city new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Yes! And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. Amen, Felix? There'll no longer be any death. 
There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have, say it out loud, passed away. Amen. And he, and he who sits on the throne said, behold, I am making all things, say it out loud. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. So John did. He wrote it down. Chapters 21 and 22 of this book are what he saw in heaven. Now, as you read chapters 21 and 22, it's important to remember the way the scripture was written, God inspired authors to write the word of God. So that what we have is the word of God, but he did so using the intellect, volition, and vocabulary of the men that were doing the writing. So when you read this, you got to understand John is writing this down with all the first century vocabulary that he has, but he is limited by his first century vocabulary. There are going to be some things that we learn when we get there and go, oh, that's what he meant. Because he can only write with the vocabulary that he had, and he was living in the first century. We, we've added a few words to the dictionary since then. There were some things that John was trying to describe that he had never seen. He didn't understand what they were. He didn't even have a word in his vocabulary to articulate them. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, being allowed to see into heaven using his vocabulary, his volition, John wrote what he saw. And just with his limited vocabulary, it's a pretty big wow, huh? He begins to describe things like the city down in verse 16. He talks about this city that is as a square. Its length is as great as its width. And it says it's 1,500 miles long, wide, and tall. Think about that. 1,500 miles long, wide, and tall. That's Las Vegas to Little Rock, San Antonio to Canada. And that's just the central city of heaven. That's just the home base of operations. He talks about the gates of pearl. You know, how many ever heard the jokes of Peter at the pearly gates, right? There's a thousand of them. You could probably all tell one. When you say pearly gates, we think about these gates with all these pearls, but literally when you read the text, it's not pearly, it's pearls, it's pearl. Meaning the 12 gates of heaven, each of them are a single massive pearl. Talks about streets of gold, all this stuff. But listen, we're not going to talk about any of that today. We're going to look at that next weekend. Because when you read Revelation 21, there's a phrase that mentions, that repeats itself over and over and over again here in this passage that caught my attention. And I want to look at this particular aspect of this chapter today. There are six times in Revelation 21 that John says something will not be in heaven. And I want to look at those six phrases in Revelation 21 and draw some application 
in the time that we have remaining. So you're going to have to listen fast, all right? <laughs> Revelation 21.1 is the first one. Look what he says. And there is no longer any, what does he say? Is that really the first thing he noticed? I mean, a city 1,500 miles wide, long, and tall, with streets made of gold, gates that were a pearl. And the, John says, verse 1, I saw the new heavens and the new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And there's no longer any sea. I got to be honest, if I was writing this, I don't think that would have been point number one. It's significant, but that ought to move down the deck a little bit, you know? Why did John say that first? You got to remember the context of where John was when he saw it. Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them ended his own life, Judas, after betraying Jesus into the hands of the Roman government. Ten of them were executed for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only one disciple of the original 12 died a death of natural causes. You know who it was? John. John was not executed for preaching the gospel. John was exiled for preaching the gospel. He was exiled. He was banished to an island all by himself. It was called the Isle of Patmos. Sometimes John is referred to as John of Patmos. If you Google John of Patmos, you can read about this John, the John that wrote the gospel, the apostle, the John that wrote the book of Revelation. John, for preaching the gospel, instead of being executed, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and he spent years on this island all by himself. Now, the Isle of Patmos was only six miles wide at its widest point. It was 10 miles long at its longest point. So think about John's existence. Every day, every week... Every month, every year, for decades. Six miles one way, all he can see is the sea. Six miles the other way, all he can see is the sea. Go 10 miles wide and look as far as he can look and all he can see is the sea. To John, the sea represented being alone. To John... The sea was a symbol of separation from everyone and everything that he ever 
love. I can only imagine that there were times John would stand with the water running up on his feet and he would think as he would look out over the sea about the time of day that it was and what was happening in his house or what was happening where he worked or what was going on in his community or during this particular season, the way the city might be decorated and the celebrations that might be taking place. John would stand there and he would reminisce and he would think about all that was happening on the other side of the sea. But John was separated from all of that. Jesus said, John, I'm going to give you a glimpse. And I want you to write down what catches your eye. John looked into heaven and he said, There's no longer any sea. You know what he saw in heaven? He saw all of the people of God from all the ages. All together enjoying fellowship and celebration and happiness and joy. And John looked into heaven and he said, glory to God. There's no longer any sea. There's no more separation. What a reunion. I couldn't help but think this morning watching this precious family worship and thinking about others of you who already have some loved ones who's gone on before. And right now you feel alone Right now, you feel separated. Right now, you feel like there's a great distance. But I want you to hear me say something to you today. Heaven is a place of great reunion. I love the way, I love the way Jonathan Edwards said it. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards said. He said, every Christian friend that goes before us from this world is a ransomed spirit waiting to welcome us into heaven. There the Christian father and mother and wife and child and friend with whom we shall renew the holy fellowship of the saints which was interrupted by death here but shall be commenced again in the upper sanctuary and then shall never end. There we shall have companionship with the patriarchs and fathers and saints of the Old and New Testaments and those of whom the world was not worthy. Here's the first thing that we learn about heaven from from these verses. Heaven will be a place of being together. (laughs) You know, when when your kids are little, sometimes it just feels like you're always together. <laughs> Any parents of small children in the room? Matter of fact, you, you begin to think, am I ever going to have a moment alone again, right? It's like togetherness running over when your kids are little. But guess what happens? They grow up. And they have their own lives. And there's a whole lot less together than there was when they were little. 
We have something at my house every Sunday. It's either you, about 80, 90% of the time it's at home. Other times we'll go out to a restaurant. But on Sundays after the two morning services, all my kids and then sometimes a few of their friends, we all pile around the table and every week we just enjoy that meal together. You know what's funny? That's become one of my favorite moments of every week. You know why? Because God made us as family to want to be together. What makes that moment special in my house is what's on the table. That's one, one part of it. Because my wife's a southern girl. If you don't understand that, God bless you. Or how we'd say it where I'm from, bless your heart. <laughs> so what's on the table? But let me tell you what makes it real special. Who, who's around the table? You know what heaven's going to be? We're going to be together. And we'll never be separated again. Let, let's move on. Let me give you a second thing. Verse 4 John said, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer, no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Anybody in the room ever had a bad day? Let me see your hand. Anybody had a bad season? <laughs> Listen to what Tony Evans said. All of the things that make life difficult will be wiped away in heaven. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells one story. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells the story of God redeeming that which was lost because of sin. God created Adam and Eve. God placed them in the Garden of Eden, this beautiful environment where they enjoyed fellowship with one another and they enjoyed fellowship with God. But then Adam and Eve chose to sin against God. And sin entered the human race and the creation of God for the very first time. When sin entered in to the, to the human experience and sin entered into the, to the creation, it brought with it the curse, the fall of humanity. There were all kinds of effects that, that, that came into our existence because of sin. The primary one of them is death. When sin entered the picture, human beings died spiritually. They lost the ability to have a relationship with God. And the story of the Bible is God, through Jesus, redeeming that which we lost because of sin. God restoring and redeeming our ability to have a relationship with himself. But there's so much more. Physical death also entered the picture. People, animals, plants began to die. Death came into the world. 
It brought with it disease and heartache and tragedy and sorrow. It's affected our relationships, the way we work, the environment, our spirituality, our fellowship with God. This curse came into the world. All of these words, weeping, mourning, death, crying, pain, all are a result of the curse of God against sin. But John says, in heaven, gone. In chapter 22, verse 3, he even said this, there will no longer be any curse. No more curse. John MacArthur said it this way. The curse with all its painful and detestable ramifications will be overturned and erased forever. Pain, the agony of toil, sweat, thorns, disease, sorrow, and sin will have no place whatsoever in heaven. The Bible says he will wipe away every tear from their eye. Here's what that means. He will literally remove every sorrow that goes with being a human being. How did this happen? Let me show it to you. Galatians chapter 3. Look at this verse on the screen. Galatians chapter 3 says, Christ redeemed us. That's the whole story of the Bible. Genesis to Revelation, God redeeming that which we lost because of sin. God redeemed us from the, say it out loud, curse of the law. Having, how did he do it? Become a curse for us. Here's what happened on the cross. All of the implications All of the ramifications of the curse of God against sin. On the cross, Jesus became all of that. Why Why did the Bible say that when Jesus was on the cross, it went dark for three hours? Let me tell you why. Because it was an ugly scene. All of the pain, all of the agony, all of the disease, all of the heartache, all of the death that was wrapped up in the curse that was on us because of sin. Jesus became all of that for us. That's why it says cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus fulfilled the ultimate penalty of that curse. He died physically. He died spiritually, separation from God the Father. He died eternally. God died. But he did not stay dead. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. He pulled the stinger out of the curse. And when we get to heaven, there'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. All of this will have passed away. Here's the application. Heaven will be a place of unending joy. Joy. Now I know what some of you are thinking. How can there be unending joy? Won't there be some sad memories from this life? Listen to what the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 65. Look at this verse. For behold, I create, say it, new heavens and a new earth. That's the same thing John said, right? So we're talking about the same place here. Look what it says. And the 
Former things will not be. Wait a minute, preacher. Are you telling me that I'm not going to have a memory of life on earth? No, that's not what I'm telling you at all. What I'm telling you is that it means by God's grace, past sins and past sorrows will not preoccupy or diminish heaven's joy. The joy of God and his presence and his people will be so overwhelming that it'll be as if those things never even happen. You say, how does that happen? Well, listen to what John MacArthur said. As for how this will work out in the hearts and minds of the redeemed, Scripture simply does not tell us. We're promised only that God himself will dry our tears. For now, it is enough to know that we can trust implicitly his infinite goodness, compassion, and mercy. We who truly know the Lord know we can trust him even with our unanswered questions. Unending joy. Let me give you the third one. We gotta, we gotta, y'all gotta listen faster. Here we go. <laughs> Look down verse 22 and 23. Oh, this is interesting. Look at this. John said, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Then John said in verse 23, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon. To shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Did you hear that? John said, I'm looking. Can't find a temple. You gotta understand for John and the people of the Old Testament into the New Testament, the temple was the, the centerpiece of their faith because the temple was the place that represented God's presence among his people. Look at 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8 says, It happened, in verse 10, It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because the glory of the Lord filled the house. God's presence filled the temple. John said, man, when I look in heaven, there's no temple. Why? John says, because the manifest presence of God is just everywhere in heaven and it's so glorious, there's no temple. He went on to say, it's so glorious, we don't even need a sun or moon. Now, some people say there's going to be no sun or moon in heaven. And they quote this verse and says, the Bible right here says that we have no need of the sun or the moon. But notice what he didn't say. There's not a sun or moon. He just said, you don't really need it. So don't go past what the book says. Remember Genesis chapter one. I want to show you something. Genesis chapter one, beginning in verse number two. Look at this on the screen. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be what? And there was what? He said, let there be light, and there was what? Light. What's missing from those verses? Sun and moon, right? Matter of fact, God made light. Three days before he hung the sun and moon in the sky. God's never needed the sun or moon to light things up. 
The sun nor the moon have ever been an absolute necessity for you and I to enjoy light. God is light. And when we get to heaven, the sun and moon are going to be what they've always been. Simply decorations created by God to display His glory and reflect and reveal His light. The presence of God is so real. We don't even need the sun and moon like we do now. Randy Alcorn said it this way, God himself will be the light source for the new Jerusalem, restoring the original pattern that existed in Genesis 1 before the creation of sun and moon. Light preceded the light holders. That's going to hit some of you at lunch, and you're going to say, glory to God, light Listen, you woke up today. The reason you think there's light is because the sun came up. I'm telling you there's light because God said, let there be light. Light preceded the light holders, sun and moon. And apparently God's very being provided that light. So it will be again. Heaven will be a place filled with God's presence. You ever been overwhelmed by the presence of God? I'm going to tell you, I had a moment this morning. I didn't think I was going to be able to preach. I just got overwhelmed by the presence of God. When you get in the presence of God like that, you know what? You know what? Everything just fades away. You can be walking through hell on earth and you get into the presence of God. And it's just like all the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory. That shouldn't surprise us. The psalmist said that. In Psalm 16, the word of God says, in your presence, there is fullness of what? Joy. I love this. The word full there is the word that describes how you feel after you eat a big meal. When you sit down at a table, like I'm going to feel this afternoon after lunch, you eat a big meal. And man, you take that napkin and you just kind of wave it and surrender, right? I can't hold another bite. Here's what the Bible says about heaven. The presence of God is going to be so real. The presence of God is going to be so manifest that every moment of every day for all eternity, I'm just going to be pushing away from the table. I can't hold another bite full of joy. Verse 25 and 26, let's move on. Look at it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Again, I don't believe when John says there's no night here any more than when he said there's no sea. I think there's going to be large bodies of water in heaven. I think the Bible in other places reveals that. You got to understand the context. In John's day, and somewhat so in our day, but in John's day in particular, the night and darkness meant danger and evil. You never wanted to get caught outside the gates of the city at night because they shut the gates of the city to keep out everything that was destructive 
and dangerous. I mean, think about it today. Most of us, we don't lock our doors during the daytime. Some of you do, a little paranoid, but some of you do. (laughs) But we lock our doors when? At night, right? Why? Because there's something about the night that just screams insecurity, danger, enemy. John MacArthur said it this way. There will be no rival to the glory and authority of God. The cosmic conflict of the ages will be finally ended forever. And God and his people will dwell in utter security. That's why he puts in this phrase, there'll be no night. He adds to it, the gates will never be closed. Talking about this reality of security. Today, as you and I live here on earth, we have an enemy. We have an enemy. The Bible says of our enemy that he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I get tired of the effects of the enemy on the lives of the people that live on this earth. You see it everywhere you go. Addiction, divorce, abuse, terrorism, crime, racism. What is that? It's all the effects of the enemy. But in heaven, the enemy has been vanquished. No night there. We don't lock the gates. Security. Here's the last thing, and I'll close with this. Verse 27. And nothing unclean. I don't know about you, but as a Christian, the thing that grieves me the most is my flesh. I so want to please the Lord. I so hunger to honor Him with my life. I want my thoughts, my heart's desires to be in line with His Word. But but just being honest, so often I struggle. I feel like in my walk, I'm constantly taking a step forward and two steps backward. And the old flesh will use that to even weigh you down, make you feel unworthy. I feel a lot of times like Paul writes in Romans chapter 7. Look at these verses. In Romans chapter 7, Paul writes some verses that I am so glad are in the Bible. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse number 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Good place to say amen. 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 For the willing is present in me, (laughs) but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing that I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle 
that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. That's what he's saying there. It's on the inside, man. Yeah, I, I rejoice in God's law and his righteousness. Yeah, when I read the word of God, everything in me says yes. But look what he says. But I see a different law in the members of my body. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Well, in another letter, Paul answered his own question. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look what he says. Verse 50, listen what he says. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Here's what Paul meant by that. I'm not sure about all of it, but I'm telling you it's the truth. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised up imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then he closes with this verse. Don't miss this. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable. Don't give up. Don't let your flesh get you down. Listen, what's got you? Is it depression? Is it lust? Is it anger? Is it greed? What is that thing in your flesh that is always nagging and always wooing and it seems like it's always winning? Listen to me. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Why is it not in vain? Listen, because he who began a good work in you will perfect it. When? On the day of Christ Jesus. Our flesh. Unclean. Nothing unclean. Heaven will be a place of purity. Man, I got to let y'all go, but I got to say one more thing. Listen. You see, this whole story from Genesis to Revelation is the story of redemption or salvation. All of it is in relationship to our sin. You see, in Christ on the cross, we've been justified, meaning that God has forever dealt with the penalty of our sin. You and I will never pay the penalty for our sin because Jesus already did. But now what's happening is we're being sanctified on this earth. God is dealing with the power of sin in our lives we hadn't beat it all the way, but we're not the people we used to be. God is progressively giving us victory. He's sanctifying us. But here's what this promise is. God will one day glorify us, meaning that we'll not just be, have, have dealt with the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but we will forever have dealt with the presence of sin. No more sin in heaven. Nothing unclean. No flesh. Nothing breaking relationships or fellowship. Gone. It's a place of purity. Well, that's a few things John says 
they're not going to be there. Come back next week. We'll talk about a few things that are going to be there. Let's pray. Father, speak to us from your word. As you sit here in the stillness of this moment, I want to ask you a couple of questions in light of what we've talked about today. The first one is this. Are you certain you're going to heaven? Heaven's a real place and everything we've said about it's true right out of God's word. But are you going there? In another book, John said this. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has the life. Who does not have the son does not have the life. Do you know this, Jesus? Have you ever come to know him personally? This morning... In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song of worship. We're going to have some pastors here at the front. If you're not sure you're going to heaven, if you want to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you just come, take one of these pastors by the hand, simply say, I need Jesus. We'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible and show you how you can be born again into relationship with God. For others of you, these pastors are going to be here. If you feel led to come and pray over something that's going on in your life, you come. But are you certain you're going to heaven? Second question, do your current priorities and passions reveal an eternal perspective? Am I living my life today in light of eternity? And then final question, are there people that you care about who don't know about heaven or how to get there? And how might God desire to use you to tell them? What's God saying to you today? If you don't know Jesus, listen, as soon as we begin to sing, you just leave your seat. Come take one of these pastors by the hand and say, I need Jesus. Father, have your way in this moment. Use it for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.